0: And uh, anyway, those are available. And then all of the last 24 years' worth of messages are on the church website as well, both audio and printed. Um, Paul, in his anxiety, having been forcibly removed from them, he had to leave town, uh, really wants to know how they're doing because he knew they were under persecution. So he sends Timothy back to get a report. took a while. Timothy comes back to him, and uh, we pick up in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction... We were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice, praying most earnestly for God on your account. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints." An unknown author wrote, Try to name the five wealthiest people in the world. If you're like me, you can name about two of them. Uh, Name the last five winners of Miss America competition. That would be zero for me. (laughs) Name ten people who have won Nobel or Pulitzer Prize. I don't know, maybe. Now, Now name three friends who have helped you through a difficult time. Name five people who have taught you something worthwhile. Think of a few people who have made you feel appreciated and special. The people you'll never forget are not the ones with the most credentials, the most money, or the most awards. The people who make a difference in your life are the ones who care, and they will live forever. You know, I think if you're a Christian, I know if you're a Christian, you want your life to count by making an impact on others for eternity. And for all of us who are parents, that first and foremost applies to our children. We want our children to know and follow the Lord Jesus. Uh, But it extends beyond that to our families, to our friends, and To impact people for eternity, as we saw last week, we have to truly care for them in a way that they feel that love, that care coming from us. Uh, Our caring is the the door or the key that opens the door to the gospel and to other truth from God's word that changes hearts and lives. Uh, Caring alone, of course, is not enough without the, the truth. But truth alone is not enough in that if all we have is truth with no caring, it, it often is not accepted. It, it's met with resistance by others. The caring is what opens the door. And we see Paul's caring heart here in our text. Uh, We saw last time that if we truly care for one another, we're going to want to be together, and we want to be together for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging one another in our uh, spiritual lives, our our walk with Christ. And now in our text, and I just couldn't include it all in one message, uh, Paul gives us two other aspects of caring for one another. We see here That if we truly care for one another, we will rejoice when we hear of others' stability in the faith. And we will pray for their continued spiritual growth. And that's a rough outline of our text. In verses 6 through 10, we see that Paul is just overjoyed to hear Timothy's report of the Thessalonians' stability in the faith. And then in verses 11 through 13, he expresses kind of what we might call a prayer wish. Um, It's now may God do this, but it's directed to the Lord as well. So it's a prayer that uh, the Thessalonians might be able um, to continue to grow in their faith. And also Paul just wants to visit them and see them face to face. So first of all, focusing on verses 6 through 10, We see that if we really, truly care for one another, we're going to rejoice when we hear of others' stability in the faith. Um, Sometimes we hear of somebody doing well, and we don't rejoice because we think, well, I'm not doing that well. How come they're doing so well? And we compare ourselves. But we really, when we hear somebody's doing well in the Lord, we ought to say, wow, that made my day. And uh, what happened here, as I mentioned, Paul is uh, has gone down to Athens alone, uh, leaving Timothy and Silas and Berea. They join him in Athens, but Paul is so burdened for the Thessalonians that he, at the risk or the cost of being left alone in Athens, and then he moves on over to Corinth, he sends Timothy. ...on a journey back up to Thessalonica. Paul could not go himself, maybe... ...because you'll remember that Jason had been forced to post a bond... ...probably guaranteeing that rebel rouser Paul won't come back into town... ...or you're going to pay for it, Jason. So Paul couldn't go, but Timothy could slip into town more unnoticed. Um, It was a little over 200 miles each way and uh, no interstate, of course... And if you're walking a minimum 10-day walk, 20 miles a day is a pretty good hike, um, each way, plus the time there. So it would have been quite a few weeks before Timothy got back. And all the time, Paul was praying. He was really concerned. And he was concerned that the persecution that these new believers were going through would not cause them to turn away from the Lord so Timothy returns, he gives Paul <clears throat> good news about their spiritual uh, condition, and Paul is just ecstatic. And uh, his verse, the verses here teach us four things about genuine concern for others' stability in the faith. <clears throat> First of all, um, faith in Christ and love, both love for God and love for others, um, those are the goals for spiritual stability. Verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. And uh, he continues. But uh, when he says Timothy brought good news, he uses the word that is almost always elsewhere used for the gospel. And Paul is saying, Timothy's good news about how you're doing well was almost as good news as the gospel to us. It was just great to hear that you're doing well. Paul's heart here just leaps for joy. Um, When it says that Timothy reported that the Thessalonians always thought kindly of Paul, uh, one scholar says that it refers to disciples who are maintaining and practicing a teacher's model or his pattern. And so, um, even though Paul and his companions had been, in one sense, the cause of the Thessalonians' trials, because now that they're Christians, they're suffering for it, at the same time, they thought kindly of Paul and were trying to imitate him because Paul had brought to them the best news in the world, the good news about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Um, and so uh, Timothy brings Paul this good news about the converts' faith and their love. Uh, John Calvin calls those two qualities, faith and love, the entire sum of true piety or godliness. And then he adds, hence all that aim at this twofold mark during their whole life are beyond all risk of erring." All others, however, much they may torture themselves, wonder miserably. Now, when Paul mentions faith, it's obviously faith in God. Uh, Love may be, in this context, primarily love for one another, but I believe it also includes love for the Lord. You'll remember that when uh, Jesus recommissioned Peter after Peter's denials, The thing he emphasized three times over was, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Love for Jesus. Um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16.22, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Anathema is the Greek word there. You remember, too, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 they're commended for many fine qualities that they had, but then the Lord says, but I, I have this one thing against you, that you've left your first love. And he's talking about love for him. Um, and and so I think, first of all, love for the Lord is included in that word love. And love for the Lord, as you know, is the basis then for loving others as we experience love for him and his love for us that then flows out to others and so i think love includes both paul had observed both the love and or the faith and the love of the thessalonians remember back in chapter 1 and verse 3 he mentions their work of faith their work of faith work that stems from faith he adds on in Chapter one verse eight, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, uh, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that was the two regions near there, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Uh, Many other references to their faith in first and second Thessalonians, I'm not going to go over them all, although I put the references in the printed notes. And he mentions also in chapter 1 and verse 3 their labor of love. <clears throat> that means uh, working for others, stemming from their love for others, which stems from their love for God. Uh, he refers to their love for others in a number of other texts as well, which I won't turn to for sake of time. Uh, they're in the notes. And he mentions the love of God in Second Thessalonians uh, three, five, which I think probably refers to God's love for us. There are many other times in Paul's writings and also in uh, other New Testament books where faith and love are linked. And again, for sake of time, I can't look these up with you, but I, I do want to focus on Paul wrote two letters to Timothy near the end of Paul's life. They're called the pastoral letters, and uh, in those two letters, as Paul is trying to instill in Timothy things that he needs to remember when Paul is gone, he seems to camp on faith and love. And I wanted to read these verses with you. First um, 1 Timothy 1, 1.5, Paul says, But the goal of our, literally, commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience And a sincere faith. So love and faith there. And then down in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 1. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 2 verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. 1 Timothy 6.11, but flee from these things, sins that he has just mentioned, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, Perseverance and gentleness. And then in 2 Timothy 1.13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 2, verse 22, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Uh, And then 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance. And so, it's not the only qualities. There's holiness and other qualities we should be pursuing, but... I think just by reading those few verses, and I left out, as I said, many others um, that I did not read, we can say faith and love are two prime characteristics of Christian uh, character qualities, of genuine Christianity. It means that we must believe in God and in the salvation he gives us through the Lord Jesus Christ— we must go on believing in God, especially when trials hit, as the context of 1 Thessalonians shows us. And, of course, we must love God with all of our hearts and love one another as we love ourselves, which are the two great commandments. So, faith and love are crucial for us as, as Christians. And when God's people are walking in faith and love, they're spiritually stable, A second thing we learn here about spiritual stability is that joy over someone else's spiritual stability, uh, stability in the faith, can bring encouragement when we're going through affliction. And that's verse 7. Paul adds, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted, or the Greek word I think is better translated, we were encouraged About you through your faith. Now, Paul had been going through hard times in every city where he was uh, preaching the gospel. You'll remember how he was unjustly uh, beaten and thrown in the stocks and put in jail without a trial in Philippi. He left there, went to Thessalonica. He was forced to leave there because of persecution. He uh, goes to Berea. Same song again, he's forced to leave Berea because of persecution. He um, gets down to Athens, he sees a little bit of fruit, but mostly gets jeers and rejection by the philosophers there in Athens. He moves over to Corinth, and it says in the book of Acts that the Jews in Corinth resisted and blasphemed they rose up against Paul. They brought him before Gallio, who was the uh, proconsul, the, like the governor of that area. And uh, he didn't care about it. He angrily drove the Jews away from his judgment seat. And he watched passively as they grabbed Sosthenes, who was a Jewish convert, and began to beat him in front of Gallio. And Paul was fearful. He he had been through a lot. He was fearful for his own life there. In that context, the Lord graciously appeared to Paul one evening in a vision. And he said to Paul, Acts 18, 9, and 10, Do not be afraid any longer, uh, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, and then... The Lord adds, for I have many people in this city. They hadn't yet come to Christ. Paul didn't know who they were, but they were God's chosen. And he tells Paul, you go on preaching and I'll I'll bring them to myself. Um, F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, suggests that perhaps at this point before that vision, Paul was questioning did I really see a Macedonian saint come over and help us? Because after he had obeyed the call, all he had had was trials and persecution and resistance and problems. And if you're like me, perhaps you've experienced that in your own ministry where, yes, I'll do this for the Lord. And as soon as you say yes, bam, 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 trials start hitting and problems start coming. And you're thinking, did I miss the signal somewhere? You know, uh, what happened? So Paul, even Paul, needed encouragement and he needed uh, comfort from God in the midst of the battle. And now he hears that the Thessalonians are standing firm in their faith. And uh, he is reassured, I have not labored there in vain, as he mentions in verse 5. And so he is encouraged. It's ironic, he had sent Timothy to encourage the Thessalonians And Timothy comes back with a report that encourages Paul. And that's the way ministry works sometimes. You're trying to encourage someone. Maybe you go to the hospital to visit them. And you come away more encouraged than you gave to them. Because they're trusting in the Lord. And uh, it's just great to see that when that happens. Now, I, I confess I have never suffered anywhere near what Paul went through Um, But I have had to battle discouragement at times. I've thought about it. It wasn't really so much of a problem in the early years of my ministry. Uh, I I remember going to a seminar once where a speaker uh, said, Oh, I know you're all battling discouragement. And I thought, No, I'm not. Um, But uh, as, as I've gotten older in the ministry here, it's become more of a problem. Uh, I think maybe as time goes by, you begin to question more: Is the Lord really using me to make all that much of a difference? And you compare yourself with some of these guys who are all over the world and all over the, you know, writing fifty books and all that. And you think, well, I must not be having that much of an impact. And it's easy to get discouraged. And Many years ago, I, I noticed something interesting in my ministry, and I commented on Marla. I noticed that every time somebody criticized me, I would get a word of encouragement, and it kind of balanced out. It worked the other way, too. If I got a word of encouragement, I kind of braced myself, and sure enough, <laughs> here it would come. Somebody would say something negative and criticize and. Uh recently, it's, it's much more the encouragement. I, I do get criticized, but not that often. And, and I think maybe it's because I've been more prone to discouragement, but the Lord is gracious. But uh, the point here is, when you hear of how the Lord has used you to help someone else, to encourage them, to strengthen their faith, perhaps even to bring them to Christ, it gives you great joy to hear of them uh, standing firm in their faith. Uh, I I found it interesting reading the Bible that two men of God, just two of the greatest men of God, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, um, were concerned that their labors for the Lord might not add up to that much. Uh, One is Moses. Have you ever noticed there at the end of Psalm 90? I mean, Moses is probably the greatest leader in the Old Testament. Maybe David is up there in his league, but uh, at the end of Psalm 90... Verse 17, Moses prays this, let the favor of the Lord, our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hand. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. And you're thinking Moses praying that God would confirm the work of his hands. I mean, he's the great deliverer that led them out of the promise or out of Egypt and in to the verge of the promised land. And, and, uh, you know, there are a few leaders like Moses, yet he's just saying, "Oh God, please, confirm for us the work of our hands." And then Paul, he repeatedly seems concerned, as he is in verse five of our text just above, that he might have labored in vain, and I put a number of references there in the printed notes. I find it interesting at the end of his life, he's summing up his accomplishments to Timothy. He's ready to die. And he doesn't say, I've planted 25 churches. I've seen 10,000 people come to Christ. I've written 13 books of the New Testament, and I'm ready to go. That's not what he says. Here's what he says, Second Timothy 4.7. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. You know, that's enough. Fought the good fight. Finished the course. And I've kept the faith. And so if God has used you to help somebody else just stand firm in the faith, Uh, I think you can be encouraged when you're going through a trial to say, well, God is at work through me. Uh, A third thing we see here is that joy over someone's stability in the faith reflects our true values. Verses 8 and 9. Paul adds, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render? To God for you, in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. Think about it. Which of the following causes you just to erupt in spontaneous joy and thankfulness? We're going to give you a nice raise. Uh, here are the keys to your new car. Congratulations, you've just won the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes and you're going to get $7,000 a week for the rest of your life. Or you meet a friend you haven't seen in a while and as you talk, you hear of how that friend has persevered through some pretty severe trials. That should make your heart just leap for joy. Say, wow, praise God. Look at how that that friend is standing firm in the midst of these trials. And that's what made Paul happy. And you know what makes us really happy? Reveals our true values, doesn't it? That's what reveals our true values. And Paul didn't take credit for this. He thanks God. What thanks can we render to God for you? Because he realizes... Anything that's happening in the lives of the Thessalonians is God's doing. God is at work in him. Paul was just the channel. And we need to keep that straight at all times that if God uses us, it's not time to pat ourselves on the back. It's just to say, thank God. Thank God. Look at what he's doing and how he's working. And uh, many, many times the Apostle Paul and some of the other writers in the New Testament pointed to Christians and said you're you're our source of joy, that's real joy, because that was their value, is they were living for the kingdom of God, and when they saw God use them to bring others to Christ or be stable in the Lord, they said wow that's that's what it's all about. Uh, I think I put a bunch of other verses there that we don't have time to look at, but the one I like is in third John verses three and four, the old Aged Apostle John says, For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you're walking in truth. And then he adds, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And isn't that true about our physical children, but also spiritual children? What a great joy when they do. Now, the word stand firm when Paul says, you know, we live, if you stand firm in the Lord, it, it's a military term used of not retreating when you're under attack. And so, to stand firm in the Lord, first and all, they have to be in the Lord through faith in the gospel. You can't stand firm in the Lord if you're not in the Lord. And that's where we begin with people, is making sure they understand Christ and the gospel. And... uh And then when the enemy attacked, it means that they fled to the Lord. They trusted in the Lord in the midst of these trials. You know, I've read Christian psychologists who say if you advise people to trust God in the middle of a trial, it's worthless medicine. I've actually read them say that. And I want to say, what? I mean, trusting God in the middle of a trial is all through the Bible many 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 examples of men and women of God who were under fire and in life-threatening situations and they cry out to the Lord and they trust in the Lord and the Lord delivers them and gets the glory that's what it's all about and that's why I love the psalms so often David is just under attack and and you know he's got an army against him and he trusts in the Lord and the Lord delivers him Uh, Psalm 57 is one of my favorites where David's hiding in a cave and Saul and 3,000 soldiers are after him. You know, picture that. 3,000 soldiers at the door looking for you and they're not nice men. You know, they want your head. And you know what David's doing? He's writing a psalm. And I think he had to sing it quietly because, you know, if he sings too loud, the guys will go, oh, he's in there and they'll come in and get him. But here's what he sings, Psalm 57:7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. It's like he has to repeat it to convince himself. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. There's the resolve of a man who is trusting God in the middle of a life-threatening trial. And that's our example. And, and if you really care for people and you hear... They're standing firm in the Lord through trials. Then you just go away saying, praise God. Praise God. Isn't that great? And you're strengthened in your faith, through their faith. That's the way we care. So faith in Christ and, and love for God, then, are the goals for spiritual stability. A- and joy over someone's stability in the faith can bring us encouragement when uh, we're going through a trial. And then joy over someone's stability in the faith reflects our true values. And then the fourth thing to note here in verse 10 is that stability of faith comes through teaching God's word. Paul adds this, As we, night and day, keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, how would Paul have done that? Answer he would have done that through teaching them more of the word. We've already seen in our study in 1 Thessalonians how deep Paul went with these people in just a few weeks. Uh, He might have been there six months. That's about the outside before he got driven out of town. And he had taught them uh, about the Trinity. We saw that in chapter 1. He had taught them about sovereign election, chapter 1, verse 4. He had taught them how to endure trials and persecutions um, we 'll we'll see when we get to chapter five. He says, "You know full well that the day of the Lord will come and so on. He had taught them about future things. Uh, he covered the gamut, and uh, when he says he wants to uh, equip them or complete them uh, it 's a word that 's used in ephesians four twelve where it says that God gave the church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so Paul saying, I want to come and use my gifts to help equip you through the word of God to get you more stable in your faith. When he says that they're lacking in their faith, I don't think he's referring to them being in sin like the Corinthians were, when he writes to them, he's rather just pointing out the fact they aren't mature. And there's always room for growth. Always room for growth. And in chapters 4 and 5, I think Paul is doing what he says he would do in person. He's supplying what's lacking in their faith. He's trying to equip them further through his teaching. And uh, then he wants to come to them. And when he says your faith, I think he's referring both to doctrine and its application. The way we are equipped in our faith is through doctrine in the Scripture applied to life. Here's what this means. Here's how it applies. And that's my aim in every sermon is explain and apply what the Bible says. Now, verse 10, then, Paul mentions his constant prayers and uh, then in verses 11 through 13, we see the content more of those prayers, and that leads to our second main point, and that is that if we truly care uh, for one another, we're going to pray for others' continued spiritual growth. And I just have time to quickly hit three things here. The first is that our prayers obviously should be heartfelt and frequent, um, we already looked at part of verse 10, but here I just want you to note how fervent and frequent Paul is in his prayers. When he says night and day, he, he just means all the time. It just is on my heart, and so all the time I I am remembering you in prayer. And then most earnestly reflects his heart. He just wants to be with these people. It's an emotional word. He feels the the separation, and he wants to be with them to help them grow. Now, there's a danger here that I want to point out, and I've read some books on prayer that emphasize fervency and frequency as if somehow that's the basis for God listening to our prayers, and that's an error because, you know, you and then you think, oh, wow, I guess I'm not fervent enough. Never come to the Lord based on anything in you, your own fervency, your own frequency, anything, and say, Lord, you need to answer because of me. We always come to the Lord on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ and his grace and his invitation to us to come before his throne. And so that's what it means when you pray in the name of Jesus. Lord, I'm coming to you based on what Jesus did for me on the cross that he reconciled me to, to you, now I'm your child, and I want your will, and so I come. And that's the basis for coming. Um, and yet, we shouldn't be like, you know, when I was a kid, confession time, we sometimes played a dirty little trick on our neighbors where we'd run up to their doorbell, hit the doorbell, and all run for, for cover, and laugh when the neighbor came to the door. Well, we shouldn't do that with our prayers, you know, just hit and run and never mention it again. There when Jesus says, ask and seek and knock in Matthew 7, those are all present tense verbs. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and the door will be open to you. And so I think our prayers should be repeated. Uh, We continue praying, and uh, in this case, Paul probably, as I mentioned last week, had to pray about five years before he could go to Thessalonica. Um, In about five years, he was able to go back up through Macedonia again. Uh, Second thing about our prayers, notice they are directed to our God and Father and to Jesus our Lord. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Uh, Three things there in that phrase show Jesus' deity. The first is his close association with the Father. Um, Both Jesus and the Father are the subject of a singular verb. Uh, No human should be on that plane. Then there's his ability to hear and answer prayer. Paul is assuming that Jesus has the ability to cause them to increase and abound in love for one another, to direct his way to them, all of that. Someone less than God cannot answer prayer. And then thirdly, there's his designation as Lord. Jesus is Lord, which means God. Um, And since Paul just mentions that in passing here, he doesn't stop and say, now let me explain. I think he had taught them about the deity of Jesus in his short time there. He'd covered a lot of bases. And so... um, There are liberals who say, well, the deity of Jesus wasn't something the early church believed in, first century. Uh, That was the invention of church fathers later on, several centuries later. Uh, I think that's clearly belied through the whole New Testament. All of the apostles taught and believed the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's an essential truth. So when we pray, we're coming to God our Father. And unlike some of our earthly fathers, maybe some of you had, he's not a mean father whose first word is no, he's a loving and caring father who invites us to come into his presence. He cares for us more than he cares for the sparrows, he takes care of them, he'll take care of you. And when we pray, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ um, and It says that, uh, well, we all know, first of all, he died on the cross so that we could come to him. And then it says in Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to make intercession for us. So when we get to his throne, he's already praying for us, and we can come and bring all our requests to him. And then finally, notice that our prayers are focused on the spiritual growth of others. Verses 12 and 13. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You notice here that spiritual growth means increasing love. We should be growing in love, uh, starting at home with our family members and love for those in the family of God. And then Paul extends it to love for all people, love for all. Also, spiritual growth here means increasing in what I would call solid, holy hope. When he says establish, uh, it's the same Greek word that he used up in um, verse Uh, Two, when he says that he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Um, To be without blame in holiness does not mean perfection. We'll never be there in this life. Uh, But it does imply that we would be walking in the light before God. Walking with our lives open to the Lord. When we sin, we confess it. Uh, We have a clear conscience before God and before others, that's what it means to be without blame and holiness, not harboring secret sins and putting on a good front before others. And when we live that way, uh, we do so in view of the fact that soon we'll be standing before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That word saints in Greek is literally holy ones. Um, Many scholars think Paul here is citing uh, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 5, where Zechariah refers to the Lord coming with his holy ones, meaning the angels. And we do know when Jesus returns, the angels will be with him. But Paul almost exclusively uses the word holy ones to refer to believers, so it may refer to both because in chapter 4 when he mentions the second coming of Jesus uh, he comes uh, with all the saints the resurrected people who have died before us and then we who are alive and uh, at that time are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and to meet all this glorious company of angels and saints and Paul says so we all, always shall be with the Lord. So Uh, Paul is uh, praying there that he might complete, he says, what is lacking in their faith, uh, verse 10. And so, as John MacArthur points out, we're kind of going back full circle to uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, where Paul mentions their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope, faith, hope, and love. And uh, we we never reach a point where we can say we've arrived at those three qualities. We'll see that uh, next week as we look at verses 1 and 2. But pray for others spiritually. You know, so often our prayers are uh, help help so-and-so with their health. That's fine. They need that. We need to pray that. Help so-and-so get a job. Yes, we need that. Uh, help them with this problem, that problem. We need to pray for one another, as Paul does, that people will abound, increase, and abound in love and in faith and in hope, and uh, that they'll be growing. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for your family members. Pray that for those in this church. So to sum up, last week and this week, from chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through 3, 13, we see Paul's care. For these people, and if we truly care for one another, then we're going to want to be together to strengthen and encourage one another spiritually. We're going to find true joy when we hear of others who are standing firm in the Lord in their trials, and, and we're going to pray for one another's spiritual growth. And the whole section, I think, could be summed up in saying, "Don't be a, a, a whatever Christian." Yeah. Whatever you know, where you don't care. Don't be a Christian of whom it could, you could say, ah, I couldn't care less about others, but rather be like Paul who says, I couldn't care more. Let's pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks for the Apostle Paul, how you changed him from a persecutor of the church to a man who was willing to suffer uh, loss and hardship and even the loss of his life to see your church thrive and prosper. I pray that every one of us would uh, do that. If any are here, Lord, who don't know Jesus, I pray you would overwhelm them with how empty their life is without Christ, how hopeless, how bleak their future, that they're going to face your judgment someday someday. And then point them to the good news of Jesus, who died for sinners, who offers eternal life to every person who will come in faith to him. And then help us as your church not to be not caring, but rather to really care for one another and for all people. To care that they would know you, to care that they would be growing in you, that that would be our focus And that we would seek first your kingdom and righteousness and not all the things that the world encourages us to seek. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.